came to you with my heart in pieces and found the God with healing in his hands. I turned to you, put everything behind me and found the God who makes all things new. I look to you, drowning in my questions, and found the God who holds all wisdom. And I trusted you and stepped out on the ocean. You caught my hand among the waves, because you're the God of all my
my bondage God you are my freedom all my days good morning welcome when we get started singing, I just want to keep on singing. <laughs> but we do want to welcome everyone and thank you uh, for being here. And um, we are going to be reading from Matthew chapter 6, page 1117. And then we're, we'll turn over to, uh, to the next page to finish. Matthew chapter 6, we'll start at verse 25 and 26. And then we'll read 31 to the end of the chapter. Um, of course, we need to remember uh, Olga and Linda and the whole family um, as they are uh, recovering from their, their uh, grieving from their loss. I'm grateful for this church being able to step in and uh, beside that family to help them through this time. So that's... Uh, that's a blessing. Um, also for uh, Santos, we the last we heard, he is uh, recovering from his ear surgery, right? Um, so we're glad and thankful for that. And so in Matthew chapter 6, 25 and 26, and then 31 and, and to the end. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Therefore, do not worry. Verse 31 saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for you to have you as our God. We are so thankful that, uh, that we can rest in you. Father, even in our hurried lives or hurried mornings, we're just thankful that we can come and gather here and catch your breath. We invite you, God, right now into this place, into our lives, into our hearts. Lord, dispel any darkness, dispel any distractions. Lord, prepare us for this time. We, we pour ourselves out in worship before you. 
we pray that you can reside there in our praises. Thank you. Receive this morning, Lord. It is for you and it's for your glory. Through your precious son, our Messiah and King, we pray. Amen. When all the saints are roaring, hell, where is your 
In the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus, give me all I need Oh, it's all I need Won't you give me Jesus Oh, it's all I need In the morning when I rise When I lay
Good morning. It is awesome to be with y'all. Uh, we are going to be in John chapter 14 today, if you're in the church's Bible, on page 1242. John chapter 14. So have you ever had a boss, you know, like a supervisor? At every level, there is someone more senior to somebody who's in the workplace. Uh, if you are a low-level person, you might have many bosses. If you are a CEO even, you've got to answer to a board of directors or someone whose job it is to manage you and to inspect your performance. And in my experience, I usually know what my supervisor expects and what they would want done in most situations. I've also learned that the more time that I spend with my boss, I can learn to better understand them, their leadership, and that their decision-making would make sense to me. The best bosses are those that you can trust so that even if you don't agree with them or always understand them, uh, you, can, you can trust their direction. So what does the workplace have to do with the Gospel of John? Well, this week the Lord has been helping me to understand that this idea of work has been stolen from God's people. This idea that we have something to do in the kingdom have, of God has been stolen and replaced with, with entitlement about what we deserve and what we're due. 
In John chapter 14, Jesus is spending his last few hours with his disciples. And I believe that the Lord gives them a blueprint for the spiritual workplace that is the kingdom of heaven. And we can't understand our work without understanding what our role is. So here in chapter 14, we've, we've read a lot of this chapter, and Jesus is sharing this Passover meal with his disciples, and he is giving them many truths. He's told them that he is going to prepare an opportunity for them for salvation, and that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So let's read together, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 14. We'll read through verse 14. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves." Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Today we're going to focus... Uh, on what is in verses 12 through 14 about doing the works that the Lord has for us. But there's some foundational things that Jesus explains beforehand that we must understand. Jesus is describing the relationship he has with the Father and he asks the disciples to believe in him. So first, we cannot oversimplify God into two natures the Father of the Old Testament, and the Son as Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus tells the disciples and us that they are one. Philip had been close with Jesus, yet he misunderstood this. And I believe this is pointed out for our example because many today aim to divide out the Father, this wrathful, vengeant, holy God of the Old Testament and the sweet, peaceful lamb that is Jesus in the new. And Jesus says that we cannot do that, that he and the Father are one. And Jesus is going to describe what this relationship looks like. First, in verse 9, he says that they spiritually look alike. He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now we read this and it seems almost too simple to know that they're one, but these disciples have been following Jesus and seeing the things that he's doing. And Jesus says, if you've seen these things, if you recognize these things, you have seen the work of my Father in heaven. This is Yahweh, the great I am from the Old Testament. 
The second thing Jesus says is that they are together. He says in verse 10, I am in the Father and the Father in me. This kind of stretches the limits of my mind to imagine that, that God is somehow in the Father and the Father is somehow in Him. But what Jesus is trying to convey is in the fullest way possible, they are together. They exist together. And it makes what Jesus says next understandable. Because Jesus says that he is dependent and submissive. He says, the words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Not only the words that Jesus is speaking at this moment, but every word that Jesus has said has been spiritually vetted by the Father, so to speak. Everything he says, he has not just built up himself for his own vanity, his own purpose, his own glory. But everything he says, he says as an agent, as a messenger of the Father's purpose. So this relationship of oneness where God and the Father and God the Son and Jesus cannot be divided are built upon these relationship principles that they spiritually look alike, that they are together, and that Jesus is dependent and submitted completely to the Father. So we've got to understand everything that Jesus says from this moment forward with these principles in mind. The next thing that Jesus says is that we ought to believe him. In verse 10, he, he asks the question of Philip. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? And then in 11, Jesus uses the word believe, but he gives a commandment to the disciples. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. So he goes from a question to a commandment. It is essential to Jesus that we believe that the Father and the Son are one. It's why I've, I've, I've said it a multitude of ways here, that they are not divided but one. This word we read here as believe is pretty heavy duty and complex. To me, this word believe is a lot like the word gravity. Now, I'm not a scientist, so I had to, to read a little bit about gravity because, you know, you remember learning about gravity when you're in the third or fourth grade, and you know that it means a lot of things for how our universe functions. The moon's gravity causes waves and tides in the ocean. On Earth, gravity gives weight to objects. So because of gravity, this podium here weighs... 50 pounds. So what we understand as gravity is actually the result of its existence. See, because gravity exists, this podium has weight. Similar is this word believe. As a result of believing, we can have trust and faith. That's what Jesus is asking of the disciples. Because they believe in him, he's asking them to trust him and have faith in him. This New Testament word is pistis. And it is a central word 
in Jesus' message. It means to be persuaded of something. It means to be convinced of something. It means, without a shadow of a doubt, we are certain and confident of something to be true. Jesus wants the disciples to be completely persuaded that he and the Father are one. Next, Jesus is going to build on this this belief that he and the Father are one. And we have to embrace this with all that it means. All of its complexity in order to understand what he says next. Read with me in verse 12. Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. So I was reading some this week and there's a recent uh, research poll by the Pew Group, which is a a pretty notable group that does research. And they say that 31% of the world, one in three people around the globe say they believe in Jesus. One in three people say they believe in Jesus. Now, I'm not aiming to know their heart, but I believe what they mean is that they acknowledge Jesus. Because if we believe in Jesus, if we are persuaded of who he is, that he's the son of the Most High God, Yahweh, Jesus says, all the works that he has done, we will do. Do you see one-third of the world doing the works that Jesus has done? Jesus says that if we are persuaded of this, then all of the things that he has done that we will do, and this is not a promise that's made only to the disciples, but all who believe. Just to name a few of the things that Jesus had done in John's gospel by chapter 14. He had turned water into wine in John chapter 2. He had healed an official son in John chapter 4. He had healed a man crippled for 38 years in John chapter 5. He had fed 5,000 people with just a few fish and a few loaves. He had walked on water. He had healed a man who was born blind, and he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus says, if you believe and trust in me in this way, you will do all the things that I have done. Now, he's not saying that we will do each of these exactly, that we will heal a man named Lazarus, that we will feed 5,000 people. But he says, these kind of things that you have seen the Father do through me, believers will do. As if this weren't enough for believers or trusters to do these, Jesus says also in verse 12, and greater works than these we will do. But he connects this to the next statement. Because I go to the Father. Now a few weeks ago we we learned about this understanding of what going to the Father means. This going or departing is connected with Jesus' death. Jesus is leaving this earth for death. And because of Jesus' eventual death, these greater works would mean the opportunity for salvation. 
So let's pause for a moment. I want to I summarize this because it's a lot that Jesus is describing in a few verses. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus speaks only on the Father's authority. The Father does the works through Jesus. Jesus wants us to believe that he and the Father are one. And if we trust in Jesus, we will do works that he has done. If we trust in Jesus, we will do greater works than he has done. And because of the death that Jesus is going to, we will lead others to salvation in Jesus. So Jesus has just offered this explanation of the relationship with the Father and what believing in him truly means so we can understand the spectrum and the range of the work that God wants to do through us. Not just turning water into wine, but giving the good news to others that they may be saved from bondage. What we read next comes in this context. Let's read verse 13. And Jesus says, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, I've heard this verse used in a lot of ways, but I've never heard this verse truly said in this context, right? Not that we should encounter a difficult situation and say, Lord, I'm asking that in your name this would be done. Or I'm going on a job interview or for an exam and I really need the Lord's help, so I'm going to ask in Jesus' name that this would be done. But in the context of knowing that Jesus and God are inseparable physically and spiritually, and that God has a plan to bring salvation to the earth, and so his son Jesus is going to go to the cross unto death to present this opportunity so that anything we ask from this spectrum of works from turning water into wine and raising the dead all the way to giving the good news unto salvation will be done in Jesus' name. That is the context for Jesus' invitation. In verse 13 it says, And whatever you ask, this word whatever would be better to be understood because or on account of. Meaning, meaning, on account of what you ask in my name. See, what we ask cannot be divided from the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is authoritative. It is an authority. Scripture tells us that saying the name of Jesus, demons flee because that name is powerful. Jesus isn't telling us that we can, we can ask for a winning lottery ticket in the name of Jesus and it will be happening. Instead, he says, on account of asking in his name, it will be done. He's describing the qualities of his name as the Son of God. He's pairing himself with the Father of the Old Testament. So if we request something that is consistent with his Father's purpose, of course it's done. Of course if we ask for the Lord's will to be done, it is 
done. We hear Jesus and we read of Jesus doing this throughout the New Testament. He prays to the Father. He prays for the Lord's will to be done. And those things he prays for are done. It's why the second part to this verse not only makes sense but is so powerful. Because he says that, so that, in order that, my Father may be glorified in the Son. See, we, we see the result of asking for something in God's name is that the Father would be glorified in the Son. See, when we ask for a winning lottery ticket, when we ask for a promotion, when we ask for a situation to be fixed, we're really not asking that the Lord would be glorified. We're asking that what we want would be accomplished or we would be glorified. The Lord's purpose serves the Lord's purpose. Finally, in verse 14, is this crescendo to the ultimate invitation. Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This word we've read for ask, it means to petition, to request, or to beg. And it's not a word that is used among equals or peers. It is a word that describes someone before a greater party. Just like in a workplace where we would go in and we would request or petition our supervisor. Meaning for believers in this true Jesus Christ, trusters of God's plan, we are invited by Jesus to come in before them, to come in before the Father and the Son and to make our requests known. It's not just a a statement of fact that anything we ask, it's just done. But anything that we come in humbly before the Father with, Anything we come in before the Father and the Son with that are according to their reputation, according to their purpose, if we are truly in unity and alignment with them, God's purpose will be done. Yet for some reason, this passage is difficult for many to understand. Right, well, if God's going to do what I ask, why do I even need to ask it? Um, If God knows my heart, why doesn't he just do the things that he's going to do anyway? Yet, we go to work in workplaces where we understand what our bosses need from us. We understand the expectations that they've given. We know the the type of work that would achieve what they're looking for. We know that even if our boss will approve time off or other things, that we go to them with humility and we petition and request. Likewise, we know what it means to ask God for something. 
we know that God isn't just going to give us the desires of our flesh, but that we've got to align with the Lord for His purpose. It's really not that difficult, but it isn't always what the flesh wants. This week as I've gone to work and I've talked to my supervisors and worked with other people, a lot of the things Jesus is describing has, has made great sense to me. But I've also understood that it's easy to apply the wrong set of principles in our relationship with the Lord. It's easy to assume that like a workplace where we have an open-door policy, if you're familiar with that, we want this open-door policy with the Lord. We want to just kind of wander into the Holy of Holies and ask for what we want instead of understanding that while Jesus offers us much, we are still petitioning the great I Am for the things that we ask. I think this misunderstanding causes a lot of hurt and pain and confusion in the church because we don't understand why God doesn't answer our prayers or communicate back with us when we're communicating with Him. I think that there are, are false teachings out there that are that are centered on verses similar to this, like in the Gospels when Jesus says we can ask anything in His name. And we're confused when we ask things and we don't receive them. Or the writer James who says, you don't have because you don't ask. So we ask for much and we don't feel like we receive what we've asked for. Or sometimes that we, we pray and we hope that somehow what we're praying for is God's purpose. We hope that they're aligning, but we're really not asking. The Lord has put it on my heart today to, to clear these things up because many have confused salvation with stature. They assume a rank because they are a truster and believer in Jesus. Many have manipulated God's mercy to mean money and wealth and prosperity. Expecting that we get what we want. Assuming that we decide what we deserve. A reality where we know what is best. A world in which God gives us the desires of our flesh. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is not a VIP lounge. It's a workplace. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're in the church's Bible on page 1344, Ephesians chapter 2, page 1344. 
the Lord brought this well-known verse to me in chapter 2. I had no idea how much was in store in this verse. Paul is explaining here in chapter 2 that salvation is not the result of our works, our good deeds. Otherwise, we'd have the opportunity to boast about it, to brag about it. But it is absolutely not the result of works. Instead, is it a gift of God's mercy. Read with me in chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These words, workmanship and works, are the exact same words that Jesus uses in John 14. Exact same Greek words. And I believe that Paul is dialed in to what Jesus was telling the disciples. And he's unpacking this for us. This word that we read here for workmanship is a special word. It is something that is worked or made, crafted even, like a fabric or a structure. It's different than the word created. This word means a work of art. And as the Lord saves us, he creates us to be new, a work of art for the artist's purpose. Paul says that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Works or deeds are broad actions that a carpenter or a farmer could do. This word just means to complete something, an action or a deed. But Paul says good works. We have been created not to just do things. Not to just go about our job or our hobbies or the things that we find to fill our time. But we have been created in the image of Christ for good works. Y'all know how I feel about this word good that, that comes from the creation accounts where God is creating things. He is making things on their day and according to his timing. And the things that God created, he said, were good. Good to God means that things are functioning in the way that he has intended them. Good carries the weight of God's purpose and God's direction. So when Paul says that we are his, we are God's masterpiece. We have been created for a purpose, and that is to do the things according to God's purpose. Like when a flower blooms and it is functioning the way God has designed it, we who are believers, we have been saved and done so for a purpose. Jesus tells us in verse 14 of John, he says, Assuredly, I say to you. Jesus makes this invitation so simple and matter of fact. He says, with complete truth, I tell you this. But following in God's purpose and asking for things that seem impossible are made simple because of a relationship that models Jesus and the Father. To believe in him is to look like him. 
it's to emulate him. To believe in him is to be with him. Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus, and we are called to be in them both. And to believe in him is dependence and submission. These are workplace terms. You don't become a good employee by doing your own thing and doing your own way and having your own opinions and creating dysfunction in the workplace. You're a good employee because you know that your boss has your best interest and you trust the things that they ask you to do. The Lord gave me the line that I read a few minutes ago that the kingdom of heaven is not a VIP lounge, it is a workplace. And I believe that the gospel has been misused to tell us all in this room that we've arrived, that it is done, it is finished, and we can rest on what has been accomplished on the cross, and that is not what Scripture says. For Jesus invites us to be a part of his team and his staff and to do his work. This work must begin in us first. I pray that we would join the Lord in what he is doing and that we would do the work of the Father and the Son. In Jesus' name. Righteous are all your ways, King of the ages. 